Oh, come on now. Don't be half-hearted about it. If you're going to do it, do it. God hates a coward. I mean, just get in there. Clap. We're Presbyterians, but our hands do work. <clears throat> this past week began a season of feasts. Right, a season of feasts. Um, starting with Thanksgiving and working our way through New Year's Day, most of us will eat and drink our way through the holidays. Um, some, of us, some of us are just coming over the meat sweats from this past weekend. I don't know if you've had those, but they're killer. Uh, shared meals, that's really what we're considering during this season. Shared meals, they have a special place in our lives. Hopefully you got to experience that this past Thursday. Um, shared meals have a, have a special place in our lives, particularly at this time of year as we gather with family and friends at Thanksgiving, and, and now you'll have uh, many opportunities over the next few weeks with coworkers and colleagues and company gatherings and friends who will come from out of town, and then, of course, as we consider the, the times we share during Advent. Uh, here on Wednesday nights during Vesper services, just small fellowship meals. Um, shared meals are important to us. And they had a special place in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke 7.34 says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. What a, what a wonderful description. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you can hardly turn a page in the Gospels without finding Jesus sharing a meal with someone. In fact, while other religious leaders, uh, disciples were known for fasting and prayer, Luke tells us that Jesus' disciples were known for eating and drinking. And so I want to spend some time this season between Thanksgiving and Christmas and ask why. Why did Jesus choose something as ordinary as food and drink to embody and communicate his extraordinary person and purpose? And, and what is it? What is it about a shared meal that embodies grace and the gospel and mission and community? And that's what we began considering last week and will continue for the next several. So the meal that we're going to look at this morning is, is a meal of welcome. And it's in Luke 7. In today's passage, if you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 864 in the pew Bibles that are there around you. And as always, the passage is printed in your bulletin, but I'd love for you to read along with me. Um, Luke's chapter 7, verse, or I'm sorry, Luke 5. Did I say Luke 7 or Luke 5? Luke 5 was last week, Luke 7 is this week. Luke, I'm sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm still having the meat sweats here. Uh, Luke 7, 33, okay, 33 through uh, 50. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, your word is mysterious, but it works. Somehow it works. As we read your word and, and you work through even faulty preaching, but somehow your word works, and that's our prayer, and that's our hope, that your word would work this morning, that your spirit would go before the reading and preaching of your word and, and open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts to receive this truth uh, of Christ's welcome for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Luke 7, 
beginning in verse 33. This is God's holy word. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God write his word upon our hearts. Have you noticed that meals are going by the wayside? I don't mean that we've stopped eating. We eat more frequently and more quantity than ever before. What I mean is that shared meals, shared meals with family, friends, and acquaintances are becoming a thing of the past. Uh, Robert Putnam, an author, wrote a book a while back called Bowling Alone, and, and he says that over the last 40 years, there has been a 33% decrease in families eating together and a 45% decrease in, uh, in people eating with their coworkers and colleagues and friends. Uh, American families now eat dinner together three times a week, and the average length of dinner is 20 minutes. And our family's no exception to this. I'm not standing up here speaking as one who's, who's mastered it. We, we've lost shared meals. And what have we lost in losing shared meals? Well, we've lost a sense of place. Shared meals provide a sense of belonging. They provide welcome. Author Taylor Clark, who wrote a history of Starbucks, says that the secret of Starbucks is not their coffee. It's the sense of place and welcome they've created. 
He says, the dinner table used to be the place of welcome, but it's been replaced by the coffee house, and a cup of coffee is just the price of admission. And if you've been to Starbucks, you know it's a pretty steep price of admission, right? But the, 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 the coffee shop has replaced the dinner table as a place of welcome, a place of belonging. And in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly sharing a meal with someone, and that's partly for historical and cultural reasons. In that time and in that culture, eating food with another person had become a a richly symbolic act of friendship, intimacy, and unity. It is simply what you did in forging and fostering relationship. It's centered around food. It's centered around the dinner table. But another reason why Jesus is constantly sharing meals is theological. It's theological. The way he ate and with whom he ate embodied and communicated truths about his person and purpose. He communicated that he is divine and human. He communicated grace and welcome and forgiveness. And here in Luke 7, we see that a meal with Jesus is a place of welcome for sinners. A meal with Jesus is a place of friendship. You know, in the Bible, and really throughout much of history, you could tell uh, who your friends were by who you spent time with around table. But now, but now friends is a number on Facebook. Right? That, that's how we associate it, not who we spend time with. Before I draw out a few lessons from this passage, I want you to get a sense. We're going we're to uh, sort of try to take away a few particular things. But before that, I want you to get a sense of the setting, right? a sense of the scandal. The, the, the setting is odd. Right? The setting is very odd because two chapters earlier, Jesus had developed a reputation for uh, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Over in Luke 5, when he calls Levi, the tax collector, and there's a big party at his home with other tax collectors and Gentiles, from that point on, Jesus' reputation precedes him as one who, who eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. He's been criticized by the Pharisees for being a glutton and a drunkard. And as Jesus' ministry is just beginning to take off, the Pharisees are ramping up their criticism of Jesus, and he's beginning to point out their hypocrisy. And yet, it's a Pharisee, right? It's a Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home for a meal, and that's odd, because there's already tension beginning to form between the Pharisees and Jesus. There's, there's already um, an air of suspicion about Jesus, and so it's a Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home for a meal, and perhaps it was, perhaps it was meant to be a trap. Uh, perhaps uh, Simon... And other Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus in some serious breach of the law. But I think it highlights something very important that we shouldn't pass by. Jesus welcomed all types. He he welcomed criminals and crooks. And he also welcomed religious elites. Why? Because they all need him. And they all still need him. So the host is is a man named Simon. We learned that about halfway through it just... He's called a Pharisee early, but later on, Jesus begins to speak to him as the host. And he's a man named Simon. And don't confuse, it's not Simon Peter, and it's not Simon the Zealot. It's not even Simon the leper. 
Those show up, those men show up frequently in the Gospels. This is another Simon, a Pharisee, a well-respected religious leader. And it was at his home, and the houses in that day uh, and in that region were like many of the houses that you still find there today. They were open air and, and had a courtyard area. And meals were served in a large room that opened to the courtyard where passing people could, could see in, people like this woman. This woman's not given a name. This unnamed woman had heard about Jesus. She had heard that, that this religious leader was quite different from the other religious leaders that she was familiar with. He was a man who welcomed, who ate with people like her. And what kind of person was she? Well, more than likely, she was a prostitute. Luke doesn't tell us that specifically, and some scholars question it, but I don't know why. I think it's clear from the text. She's described in verse 37 as a woman of the city, a sinner. Tim Chester writes, She lets down her hair to wipe her tears, and letting down your hair was what you did in the bedroom. This woman relates to Jesus the only way she knew how to relate to men. Well, Simon obviously knows her reputation, so she has some sort of reputation. She's not your sort of run-of-the-mill sinner. He's appalled by her presence. This is scandalous behavior. Even more scandalous is Jesus' response to her. See, he doesn't stop her. He doesn't rebuke her. He, he essentially welcomes her. He welcomes her at Simon's table. That's the setting, and it's a setting that's filled with scandal. So do you have a sense? I want you to have a sense of what's going on here. This open courtyard area, this meal served in a religious leader's home, a woman who had heard about Jesus barges in a woman whose reputation, like Jesus, precedes her. And so what does Jesus intend for us to see in this scandalous meal? I believe he intends for us to see three things. First, we're meant to see that Jesus welcomes sinners. Right? Jesus welcomes sinners. Welcomes sinners. When I say every Sunday morning, hey, if you're visiting at CPC, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I don't mean that we're just tolerating you. I mean that you're really welcome here. We're glad you're here. When Jesus welcomes sinners, he doesn't tolerate sinners. He doesn't tolerate you, friends. He welcomes you. He intimately associates himself with sinners. He binds himself to sinners. You know, we're told at the very end of John's gospel, just think about this. This is an amazing verse, sort of a throwaway verse. I don't mean it's a throwaway, but we sort of, we sort of forget about it. It's at the very end of John's gospel. We're told that Jesus did far more than what's recorded in the Gospels, right? That Jesus did far more than what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record. And in fact, if everything Jesus did were recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write it all down. So Jesus did far more than what the Gospels tell us. But they tell us everything we need to know in order to know Him in order to have faith in him. And so Jesus did so much more than what's recorded here, and yet it, that's why it's almost absurd the way that Luke records this gospel. He could have left this out. He left many things out. He had to. 
But why didn't he leave this out? Jesus already has a a reputation for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and Luke doesn't try to hide that reputation. He enhances it. He tells a story. Think about it. That's why we read verses 33 through 35, which really are the the, the prologue uh, to this story. That Jesus is known as a, as a man who is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the very next story that Luke records confirms that fact. Testifies to it. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He does welcome sinners. And that's good news, friends. That's good news for this woman. But it's also good news for you. And it's good news for me. Those few verses that we read, 33 through 35, um, that lead us into this meal. They explain in a very curious way why Jesus' welcome of sinners is actually the welcome of salvation. His welcome of sinners is a welcome of salvation. So Luke records for us that Jesus has a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. Being a glutton and a drunkard. And that phrase is an allusion to Deuteronomy 21.21. So if you were a good, upstanding Jew like Simon was, like the other Pharisees were, when you heard this charge of being a glutton and a drunkard, if you knew your Old Testament well and were catechized well, you would have thought back to Deuteronomy 21.21. And there, this is what we read. This rebellious and stubborn son of Israel will not obey our voice. He is a glutton, and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city will stone him to death. When the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard, they are accusing him of being a rebellious son of Israel. They are saying he's deserving of death. And yet Luke tells us that wisdom is justified by all her children. What does that mean? Well, Jesus proves that he is not the rebellious son of Israel, but instead he is the faithful son of Israel who died the rebel's death. Deuteronomy 21.21 tells us that the rebellious son of Israel uh, should be stoned because he's a glutton and a drunkard. But Deuteronomy 21.22 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death and hung upon a tree. Friends, Jesus is not the rebellious son you and I are. We're the ones who deserved his death, and yet he died in our place. And his welcome of sinners, like this woman, is the welcome of salvation. And what Luke is doing, and and we shouldn't overlook it, what he is doing in this welcome of this woman is he is connecting this Old Testament uh, passage about death and and rebellion to Christ's work on the cross. Jesus welcomes sinners, and it's the welcome of salvation. I believe the second thing we're meant to see is that sinners welcome Jesus. You know, there are two sides to this story. Jesus welcomes this woman, but this woman also welcomes Jesus. So who is the host? Simon, say it out loud. That just helps me know you're awake. Simon's the host. But this woman, who is not even an invited guest, is shown to be the true host. See, in that day, in that culture, it was, it was customary for the host to greet his guests with a kiss. We prefer a handshake these days. 
but they would greet the guests with a kiss. They would offer them water to wash their feet. Many times they would offer them olive oil as a token of blessing. But, but Simon does none of that. He's, he's too busy. He's too busy watching for Jesus to make a misstep. And when this woman enters the house, he's quite literally in shock at the scandal of it all. Do you know who she is? Do you know what she's done? Jesus, do you recognize as she lets her hair down what she's doing now? I understand, Jesus said. She's welcoming me the way you should have. You gave me no water, but she's wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no olive oil as a token of blessing, but she's anointed my feet with expensive ointment. Here's what Jesus is saying. Simon, I am in your house, but she is proved to be my host. So why does one sinner welcome Jesus lavishly? This is a scandalous, lavish display. Why does one sinner welcome Jesus lavishly and another sinner fail to welcome him at all? You know, the difference between Simon and this woman, I think, that, I think the, the most significant difference, is not just in how they view Jesus, it's in how they view themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness because he doesn't view himself in need of forgiveness. This woman has a strong sense of forgiveness because she believes with all her heart that she's broken and desperately in need of forgiveness. So yes, they, they viewed Jesus differently, but they viewed themselves differently. Tim Chester, I've quoted him and probably will many times. I love this. He writes, Our meals express our doctrine of justification. Our meals express our doctrine of justification. It's possible to articulate an orthodox theology of justification by faith, but communicate through your meals a doctrine of justification by works. Simon believes in a form of justification by works. It's all about the kind of person he is. It's about the kind of obedience that he keeps. And his meal and welcome of Jesus, or really lack of welcome, display that. This woman, who has none of Simon's theological training, she believes in justification by faith. She knows that simply welcoming Jesus and being welcomed by him will make her right. And Jesus says in the end of this story, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, how welcome is Jesus in your life? How welcome is Jesus in your life? Is, is he welcome in your life as a distant deity? Is he welcome in your life as a spiritual life coach? Or is he welcome in your life as a friend, the friend of sinners? Is, is he welcome to truly know you? Now, of course, he does truly know you. He knows you better than you know yourself. But do you keep Christ at arm's length from the messy table of your life, or do you welcome him because you're keenly aware of your need for him? Jesus welcomes sinners, and to the degree that sinners see their brokenness, they will welcome Jesus. See, if you believe that you're a little sinner, you know what you need? A little Savior. But if you believe that you're a, a big sinner, 
incredibly broken, as sinful as, as this woman is shown to be sinful, then you need a miraculous Savior. That's who Jesus is. And here's the third thing we're meant to see. The church, us, we must welcome Jesus and sinners. You know, it's, it's easy to love Jesus and people in some abstract sense, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the things that we know uh, early on as, as we either grow up in the church or become uh, followers of Christ, that, that the chief virtue is love, faith, hope, but above these is love. And that as Christ has loved us, we're called to love others, both those inside the church as well as outside the church. And it's easy to do that in an abstract way. It's easy to preach the virtues of love, but we're called to love real people with real problems, like this woman. Why? Because we're real people with real problems, and we are loved. I hope you're able to read that quote the front of your bulletin from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, in an, in an idealized community, I think that's what we want church to be many times, an idealized community. He says, in an idealized community, the kind of community the Pharisees wanted, the kind without real messy sinners, we make our demands of people and of God, even ourselves. But Christian community is not an ideal to realize, but it's a reality created by God that we participate in, and the demand is met by Jesus. And so one author says that it's possible to remain at a distance from someone in public gatherings. It's, it's possible to really remain at a distance, even when you're around people. He says, particularly in the church, in a Bible study setting. But a meal brings you close, and you see people as they really are. That, that, that's why meals are so important, shared meals, because we see one another as we are, not as we pretend to be. So my, my oldest son, Cademan, a couple of years ago, participated in a cotillion class. And I, I think um, my second son, Kreth, is set to participate in cotillion uh, this year. D are you familiar with cotillion? Now, I really, I had no idea what, what it was until um, Cademan signed up for it, or, or Kimbo signed Cademan up for it. Um, so so here's, here's what cotillion is. For, for several weeks, um, young men and young women, they're taught proper etiquette and, and social customs. And they're taught how to sit at table and where to place their hands and which utensil to use with each course. All that kind of stuff that no one really ever does. And then the, the thing ends with a dinner and a dance. But the problem is, it's a farce. You see, no one actually eats like that. Especially when they're with their friends. Right? When our best friends, the maskles, come to town and we eat with them, we kick off our shoes under the table, and we laugh between bites. Sometimes we, eat with our, or we, we talk with our mouths full. And, and I've, I've told Mike, Mike, the way you chew, it really annoys me. I'm not trying to be an uncultured swine. It's just who I am, Richard. Friends, something tells me that Jesus wouldn't have had much use for cotillion. When we see these meals with Jesus in the Gospels, Luke 5, Luke 7, Luke 9, Luke 11, Luke 14, 
we see him reclining at table, the life of the party. And when we welcome people, we welcome them to come as they are and be themselves. We say, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome here. You don't have to take a class to come here. You don't got to go through a spiritual cotillion class to be welcome in this church. We don't care where you put your hands. We don't care which knife or fork you use. You're welcome here. And when that's the character of our church, really the character of us as Christians, when it's a place of refuge for sinners, Jesus shows up. A couple of interesting things. When Paul's listing the requirements for elders, the leaders of the church, he says that an elder must be hospitable. That's elsewhere translated welcoming. Because to be welcoming, and that's meant to be a key hallmark of the church, is meant to characterize the leaders of the church and then everyone. To be welcoming is to shepherd people and care for them as Christ does. When the Corinthians let their weekly feast get out of hand and it turned into a drunken love fest, Paul didn't tell them to stop feasting. That's what I've done. Just stop it. No more Wednesday night meals. You guys can't keep it together. That's not what he does. He realigns their feast to the cross. And our welcome of people must point them to Jesus and convey to them the way that we welcome people and Jesus in our midst must convey to others that they are truly loved and truly welcomed because we have been overwhelmed by the welcome of Jesus. So how do you know? How do you know when you've been loved and welcomed? You can just sort of sense it, can't you? How do you know when you've been loved and welcomed? When others think of you and your desires more than your own, you can tell you've been loved and welcomed. Can't you? When others put, put your desires above their own, you can tell that you've been loved and welcomed. My, my favorite dish is cheese nip chicken. My favorite dish is cheese nip chicken, and um, my mother-in-law made it, and she passed the recipe on to Kimbo, and I absolutely love it, but it's a pain in the butt to make. It's really labor-intensive. You know, first you have to pound out and flatten the chicken breast, and then you have to spread the filling of cheese and peppers and such onto each breast. Then you have to roll them up and pin them with toothpicks, then roll them in cheese nip crumbles and bake them. And it's not a quickly prepared meal. So I used to only get cheese nip chicken one day a year, my birthday. Either my wife or my mother-in-law would prepare cheese nip, only one day a year. But for some strange reason, there have been many times here lately when I've come home on just some random Tuesday and either Kimbo or my mother has made cheese nip chicken. They've shown love and welcome. Why? In a silly way. By putting my desire above their own convenience. And listen, that's the character of our church, or at least it should be. In a sense, we must be willing to make cheese nip chicken for others. That must be the character of our church. That we welcome people by putting their desires above our own convenience. It's what we see with Jesus. Proverbs 15, 17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is present than a fattened ox with hatred. When we express love for Christ first and foremost and then for one another and others, 
by thinking not of ourselves, but thinking of others in the way we welcome people, in the, in the way that we prepare food, in the way that we embody the sacrifice of our Savior. We are doing that, embodying Christ in Philippians 2, who looked not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Friends, Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes this woman. He even welcomes Simon the Pharisee. He welcomes you. He welcomes me. And as those who have been loved and welcomed, it is now our call to extend the love and welcome of Christ to others. And so with that, I welcome you to this table, to this feast. Let's pray. Father, Jesus took things that